0: Please turn with me and your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, looking this evening at verses 1 through 18. This really uh, brings to a conclusion the center section of Hebrews, really the heart of the book of Hebrews, uh, focusing on the priestly work of Christ. Uh, As we've seen all along, Hebrews is a book that is showing the relationship between the Old Covenant, the things that pertained to it, and the New Covenant, and uh, what it involves, particularly as it's centered in the finished work of Christ, and why what we have in the New Covenant is superior to what we have in the Old Covenant. But really the heart of that has to do with Christ's work as our great high priest, and so that's why this central part of the book has been dealing with that at some length. Well, that section draws to a close with the verses that we are looking at tonight, and then he begins to uh, to go into uh, more of uh, an application mode, taking some of those things and others and uh, dealing more directly with the Christian life as it flows out of what Christ has done. So let's look tonight at Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. Hear the word of God. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of, have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after, after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. We give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray and ask for his blessing in our study tonight. Father, we do ask for your blessing, not merely as a matter of form, but because we desperately need your help as we study the word of God. And Lord, we pray for your spirit to illumine our minds tonight, to guide us into a right understanding of your truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are precious few things in this world that don't have to be redone. I'm trying to think through the things that we do in this world that have to be done again and again and again for one reason or another. Uh, taxes. You, you pay taxes all the time. You pay taxes every year. Every year we come around April 15th. Um, termite bonds you know you get that done that's not good for all time you have to have it renewed each year and eventually you have to have uh, a new treatment uh, to prevent termites um you don't wash your car and it stays clean forever you have to do that again you change the oil various things of maintenance um trying to think what what we do in this world that stays done that you don't have to do again um Sure, you could think of several, but the only thing that comes to my mind, and of course, this is the the ideal, is marriage. Uh, when you get married, that marriage is to uh, to continue uh, as long as you both live. Of course, in the event of death or perhaps divorce, someone may be remarried and do again. Uh, but the, the the ideal is that you are married, and that's pretty much for uh, a lifetime. Um. I'm sure there are other things that stay done once you do them in this life, but most things have to be redone. And you get the sense of that as we've been studying these these chapters in Hebrews of that cyclical nature of the Old Covenant. Uh, Year after year, things are done, and then they're done again, and then they're done again, they're done again. Biggest contrast uh, with that, of course, is in the New Covenant, the work of Jesus, that he especially focuses our attention on this passage that we're looking at tonight that Jesus death and resurrection the substance of his priesthood solves our sin problem for all time and not just for this life but for this life and the life to come and so that's that's the case that he's making in this passage this is his argument and it really draws to a close this whole central section of the book of Hebrews simply pointing to Jesus' work uh, as dealing with our sin for this life and forever, uh, or as He says uh, in verse 14, for all time, and could add to that for eternity. Now, as we look at the passage, it really kind of breaks into two parts: one where He's talking about the old covenant, and then the second part of it where He talks about the new covenant. And again, kind of following a pattern He's been. A following throughout these chapters, kind of going back and forth and contrasting the two. Well, he says here in the first four verses, in the Old Covenant, we have a reminder of sin. That the Old Covenant's effect is to remind us of sin. Uh, now, he's talking about these sacrifices that under the Old Covenant are offered repeatedly, regularly. Some of them daily, some of them annually. Uh, let's look at what he says about these sacrifices. He says, on the one hand, they reflect... The truth of what Christ would later do from their standpoint, what he would do. But they're they're a reflection, or to use his term, they're a shadow. Verse 1, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The shadow is not the thing. It's it's merely a shadow, uh, or to use the the word I'm using here, it's a reflection of it. It it points to it, but it's not the thing itself. And that's why he says, because this is true, because it's not the true form of what was to come, it can never, even though these sacrifices are offered every year, even though God told them to offer these sacrifices every year, this was God's system, those things can never make perfect those who draw near. And that's the need, isn't it? God's standard is perfection, and that's very bad news. Unfortunately, for some people, that's the message they take away from the Bible. Uh, The bad news. God's standard is is perfection, and you and I do not measure up. We don't meet that standard. That is bad news. Uh, It prepares the way for the good news, but you do want to make sure you get to the good news, uh, but for some people, uh, either in their reading of the Bible or even in teaching and preaching the Bible, it comes away as, here's God's standard, now you need to try harder and measure up. Well, no. Uh, we can't do that. And under the Old Covenant, those sacrifices themselves can't actually achieve the perfection that God requires. So not only reflect the reality of Christ but also he points to their repetition. These these old covenant sacrifices repeat. He says, verse 2, Otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, uh, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. If they could, why do they have to keep being repeated? Why do they have to keep recurring? If they accomplished what needed to be accomplished, they would need to keep being offered up. Uh, the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Curious way to put it. Verse 1, he talked about perfection, but here he's talking about a very subjective sense, having an awareness or a consciousness of sin. So what he's saying is, even when they offered these sacrifices they that God established, they still had a consciousness of sin, an awareness of their sin, a sense that things still weren't right as they should be between them and God. Now, that was God's provision. It did point to the reality of Christ, by which they are saved. People in the Old Testament were, in fact, right with God. But you could argue, in a sense, their justification was provisional. Uh, it It was, as Paul says, God's passing over sins committed beforehand until the work of Christ should be accomplished. Uh, so the writer of the Hebrews says that they, they have this consciousness of sin. If, if, the, if those offerings had taken care of sin, then we presume they would not have that. But verse three, in these sacrifices, there is in fact just the opposite, a reminder of sin every year. Now, they were a reminder of more than that. They were a reminder of God's grace in allowing a substitute, Uh, Providing a substitute to die in the place of the sinner. Of course, the animals of the shadow pointing to the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. But he says that those sacrifices, far from removing consciousness of sin, in fact merely served to remind, served to remind of sin. That every time that, that animal died, it, it impressed home the fact that's what I deserve. That's what I deserve. That's what I deserve. It is a reminder of sin, the sinfulness of sin, the, the, the just deserts of sin. And then he, he wraps it up in verse 4 just by a blank statement. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So those sacrifices, though ordained by God, simply serve to impress upon the people their sinfulness. Otherwise, they wouldn't have to offer these things. And the repetition served to drive home that point. They pointed to grace, too, of course. But that's not the argument he's making here. His argument has to do with, ultimately, the inadequacy of the Old Covenant to accomplish what God had in mind, finally, to do. So in the Old Covenant, he's arguing, we have this reminder of sin, this whole sacrificial system where these things are repeated day after day, week after week month after month, year after year, driving home the sinfulness of sin. We say, well, that's the people in the Old Covenant, right? Well, yes, but God gave us the Old Testament. Now, granted, reading about all of these offerings and sacrifices in Leviticus may sometimes get a little bit tedious or difficult for several reasons. One, the repetition themselves. Two, uh, the, the, the somewhat foreign nature of all of that to us. Um, just sometimes makes it difficult. But we need that. What what ultimately is the theme of a book like Leviticus? Blood? Well, yes, but, but toward a greater end. Leviticus, with well, all of its sacrifices, is about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and what God has done to bring sinful man into the presence of a holy God. In other words, Leviticus is about the gospel. That's the gospel. How can sinful people be reconciled to a holy God? Leviticus is about that. And you can't really and and deeply understand the work of Jesus until you understand a book like Leviticus. Now, I'm sort of singling out Leviticus because that's kind of the hallmark of it. Other books contain, Exodus contains laws about sacrifices and so forth and the tabernacle system and And all of that. But what I'm saying is, we too need to learn the lesson of the Old Covenant. When we read of those sacrifices, the various animals that were offered, we need to be reminded of our own sinfulness. Of what our sin deserves. So while that may not be an ongoing event that we see personally and visibly and hear and smell on the printed page in God's Word, it should perform that same function for us of reminding us that we are sinful. And apart from God's grace, we cannot know God, we cannot be reconciled to God, we cannot come into the presence of God. And so we need to, those lessons of the Old Covenant are for us. The Old Testament is still valuable for the believer, even if we don't live under that administration of God's grace that it describes. So in the Old Covenant, we have a reminder of sin, in the New Covenant, he goes on to uh, state, in a much longer section, verses 5 through 18, we have an atonement for sin. We have the reality to which the, the old was a shadow. So let's go back and look at verses 5 and following. Uh, he talks about here, of course, the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, verse 4, an important transition, blood, uh, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, uh, quickly moving to Christ, who can take away sins. Then he talks about Christ's sacrifice, the sacrifice of the new covenant. And he says basically three things about it here. First of all, that sacrifice of Christ in the new covenant is personal. It's personal. Look at verse 5. When Christ came into the world, he said, verse 5 um, picks up this quotation uh, from Psalm 40. And takes these words of the psalmist and essentially puts them into Jesus' mouth. Because they do describe what Jesus came to do. It's as if he said them himself. And since the psalms are God's word, and and in a real sense, he did. Uh, Sacrifice is an offering you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so it it is true that God does not take pleasure in the sacrifices, and the sense of that is it's not as though his people can sin with impunity, but as long as they offer a sacrifice, everything's okay. God wants the obedience of his people. The sacrifices point to the to the reality of their disobedience, but it's not as though what some people do today. Just presume you can sin all you want and go to God and offer your sacrifice or ask forgiveness and God's happy with it. He wants your heart. He wants your life. Uh, and that's what the word is saying here. In the verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I have come to do your will, to obey perfectly, to do what we cannot do, what we have not done, as it's written of me in the book. And the writer of the Hebrews sort of Expands on that, uh, expounds a little bit, verses eight and following. When he said, "You've neither desired nor taken pleasure, and so forth," offered according to the law. And then he added, "Behold, I've come to do your will." He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. The sacrifices in order to establish the work of Christ. The first is the sacrifices. That's the point he's making here to establish now the work of Christ. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. In verse 10, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's what he establishes in the new covenant. It is a personal sacrifice, the sacrifice, the offering of the body of Jesus. The priest offered something else. Jesus offers himself. He is both priest and sacrifice who and offers himself up. It is very personal. It's bound up in Jesus who has come to do the will of God. We talked about that last December, the first of Jesus' statements while the Son of God became a man, was to do to, to do to accomplish the will of his Father, and ties right in with that. And by that will, we've been sanctified, we have been made holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Contrast that with verse 2. Otherwise, would not they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleaned, cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in fact, they do, because those they, they remind of sin. But now with Jesus, we have been sanctified. We have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Because it accomplishes what it's supposed to do. It's, it's a once for all event. Well, that, that brings us, it's going kind to of transition into the next section. Verses 11 through 14, not only is this sacrifice personal, but it's also permanent. Uh, look at verse 11. He sort of sets the tone at the end of verse 10 there, but then he goes back says in verse 11, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which should never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, the contrast is the priest who's always standing, always offering, always sacrificing. Jesus, who offers himself once and then sits down. His work is complete. He has finished it. He has accomplished it. Sits down at the right hand of God, waiting that time, uh, until his, his kingdom has expanded, uh, has, has done what it's going to do in the world. It should be made a footstool for his feet, which is this time we're in now, where the kingdom advances, the gospel advances, uh, till his, his glorious return. But until that time, the idea of his being seated indicates his, his work was effective. It's accomplished, it's done, there's no need to do it again. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected, there's that word again, for all time those who are being sanctified. A curious juxtaposition of both justification and sanctified, uh, sanctification. He has perfected for all time our justification, right? We are right with God, that's good for all time. Those who are being sanctified—that work that He's doing in us now, making us what uh, in our in, in our lives day to day, what we are in fact in standing before God in Christ. We are perfected once for all in Christ, justified, but we are being sanctified. He is at work to make us like Christ. By the way, it's worth noting uh, more of an historical note. Verse eleven. I don't know if he's using just this, this present tense for effect, uh, but he says every priest stands daily at his service. He doesn't say every priest stood daily at his service. It's uh, uh, one of the verses that uh, supports the idea that these words were written before the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in the year 70 by the Romans, Uh because if that had event had already taken place, no doubt he would have used that as part of his argument. But apparently, uh, Jerusalem was still there, the temple's still standing, sacrifices being offered because he refers to that in the present tense. He doesn't make use of what would be a very fine argument for him, otherwise. so it's personal. The work of Christ is sacrifice, it's permanent. It accomplishes what God wants to accomplish, unlike the old covenant sacrifices, which we pointed to it. And then lastly, it's powerful. Verses 15 through 18. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, and you get this quotation from uh, Jeremiah 31, the covenant I will make with them, I'll put my laws in their hearts, write them on their minds. uh, What the Old Testament itself said about what was to come. This, this internalization of the gospel of, of God's work, where His laws are written on our hearts, written on our minds, then He adds, "I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more." Now He concludes verse eighteen, where there is forgiveness of these our sins, our lawless deeds, and there's no longer any offering for sin. We're forgiven. It's done. If you were a Christian, your sins are pardoned. You're forgiven. God remembers your sins. He remembers your lawless deeds no more. Not in the sense that God couldn't be aware of them, but the point is he doesn't remember them against you. He doesn't hold them against you. And so he wraps up his argument very simply in verse 18. If you're forgiven, if it's done, there's no longer a need for sacrifice. That's precisely what the Old Covenant sacrifices could not secure, which is why they were repeated. Uh, Not so much because they remove sin, but because they remind people, they remind us of our sin. But where forgiveness has been granted, it's done. If, um, If I were to do something, say something that offended you, you came to me and said, you know, what you said offended me, really bothered me, and I said, I, I am so sorry. Will you please forgive me? Uh, I really, that, I just, that was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. Uh, I'm sorry I hurt you. Please forgive me. And you say, of course I forgive you. You're forgiven. Uh, that, that subtle, you're forgiven. But what if I came to you the next day and said, you know, I still feel bad. I, I apologize again. Will you please forgive me? And you'd be thinking, uh, yeah, well, I forgave you yesterday. And that's good for today, too. I forgive you. And if I came to you the next day. And said, will will you please? Well, that's exactly the argument he's making here. Forgiveness has been granted. It's done. It's taken care of. God does not remember our sins anymore. So there's no longer any offering for sin. Jesus has died. And the whole matter between us and God is settled for all time. Now, does that mean we don't have to go to God and ask forgiveness and, and ask for his pardon for our sin? No, although uh, we don't need to be afraid that somehow we've missed one somewhere and God's going to hold it against us. Uh, part of living the Christian life is a life of daily repentance. And where we do know that there's something in our life that's contrary to God and His will and His word, we do acknowledge it. We do ask His forgiveness and ask for His grace to obey rather than to have to come and ask forgiveness. Uh, but at the same time, we need not fear death that there's something we've forgotten to ask God to forgive us for because His forgiveness is far more comprehensive than even we with our knowledge of our sin uh, are aware of. Where there is forgiveness of these sins and our lawless deeds, then there's no longer any offering for sin. We need to hear that. Because we have an enemy who's known as the accuser, who uh, takes delight in discouraging us with our sin, throwing our sin at us, tormenting our consciences with it. And... Uh, Our defense against that is the very truth that these passages speak of. Our sense of well-being before God is not a subjective thing. It's based on something very objective, something that happened in history, and that is the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in the face of a guilty conscience, when your conscience hurts, you need to examine and ask what's there. But if it's something that you've taken to the Lord, if it's something that, if necessary, you've made right with another person, then you need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to go back to yourself with verse 18 and remind your conscience, remind your heart, where there is forgiveness of these sins, there's no longer any offering. Christ has died and the matter is settled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for an objective atonement or a Savior who took our sin upon himself and suffered what we deserve for it, Uh, that your wrath was poured out on him. Thank you, Father, too, that we are clothed in his righteousness, that you've given that to us. And, Father, we want to obey you. We want to live lives that are holy, that are pure, that are humble, that are Christ-like in every way. And yet, Father, we recognize that we fall short, and we will fall short. Uh, But, Lord, we pray. Uh, that you would remind us both of that perfection in Christ in which we stand before you and that you are at work sanctifying us keep us from discouragement and above all father help us to have consciences that are clear before you not because we're doing better or trying harder but because of our savior the Lord Jesus and all of the accomplished force we pray in his name amen